right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up Podcast. Solly here, got an interview coming to you shortly with Hughes Norton. If you don't know the name, Hughes was an agent in the business for the golf business for a long, long time, including the guy that signed Tiger Woods out of college into his early professional career. Hughes has stories for days. He does not hold back in telling them stories about managing Greg Norman for 11 years, how he learned under Mark McCormick, what it was like to manage a young Tiger Woods, getting fired by Tiger Woods, his relationship with Earl Woods, how they managed to set up that relationship with Tiger Woods. Man, I could talk to this guy about golf and his stories for hours. He shared an hour with us. I hope to say he will come back in the future to tell us more stories because if you can't tell, He's got plenty of them. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Whoop, the personalized digital fitness and health coach and official fitness wearable of the PGA and LPGA tours. This thing will let you monitor your recovery, sleep, training, and health with personalized recommendations and coaching feedback from Whoop. Helps you train smarter, recover faster, sleep better, and now healthier with Whoop and their all-new Whoop 4.0. It's the latest, most advanced fitness wearable on the market. The new 4.0, smaller, smarter, and designed with new biometric tracking, including skin temperature, blood oxygen, and more. It features a smart alarm designed to wake you up feeling refreshed and ready to take on the day. Designed with their Anywhere technology, you can wear it with their Whoop body sensor, enhanced technical garments, boxers, shorts, compression tops, bralettes, leggings, and more. Just remove the band from the device, slide it onto the garment of your choice, and you're discreetly tracking your daily activity with Whoop. For the all-new waterproof device, it's free when you sign up for a Whoop 4.0 membership. For any members, if you have six months left of membership on your account, you can upgrade now and get the 4.0 for free. And right now, Whoop is offering 15% off when you use the code NLU15 at checkout. Go to whoop.com, W-H-O-O-P.com, enter NLU15 at checkout to save 15%. Here's Hughes Norton. So I think every college kid kind of goes through this at some point. I know I did watching the the uh, television series Entourage. Everyone kind of dreams of being an agent. That seems like the dream job growing up. You lived it. Tell me about getting into the agency business. How did you get into it? Total accident, Chris. Um, I'm a uh, uh, student at grad school in Boston. Uh, getting an MBA at Harvard. And at the end of the first year, there's a class called Starting New Ventures, which was about entrepreneurs. The setting in at the Harvard Business School is an amphitheater type look with about 75 students in the class. And every night you get a case that you read and study, go into the next day's class to discuss. And at the end of every case is, okay, here's the situation where the entrepreneur was at X point in time. What would you do from here? So reading about the case, I'm obviously enthused. Sports, wow, you can actually make a living in sports. So we go in and Mark McCormick, who's the founder of IMG, which was really the start of sports management as we know it today, is there in class. And the uh, professor has the normal discussion among students. But the fun thing is at the end of about 45 minutes, he calls McCormick up to the front and says, okay, Mark, tell us what happened from this point in the case. And what did you do right? What did you do wrong? You know, it was a fascinating kind of way to learn. I didn't care about any of that. I just want to go meet this guy and try to get a job. So <laughs> I knew right away when I read the case the night before that, like you said, entourage wasn't around in my day, but we had the same feelings. So I went up 
tried to talk to him, but there were six other guys in line ahead of me, uh, which maybe gave you the idea that uh, my chances weren't great. But he did, gave me his card, said, write me a letter or whatever. I did that. He came back the next year, uh, my second year, when I was about to get my degree and taught, took part in the same class again. Before I went, I was in touch with his secretary and I said, uh, is he going to interview me? What are we going to do? And she said, yeah, your interview will be in the car on the way to the airport. <laughs> and that that's the way McCormick was. He just like one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. Got in the car with him, drove out to Logan Airport for his flight. And give you an idea how long ago this was in the car. He says to me, oh, and, and he's six foot five. He's a big guy. And I have this little rundown Chevy, whatever it was, used car at the time. And his knees are up to his chest in the car, right? So I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is never going to work. He's talking to me and he pulls out his three by five cards, which he always kept in his sport coat. And he had this thick pack of cards, which I went on to learn. He had a card for each you know, top executive in the company with notes on it all the time as to what, what we were all doing. And anyway, so he says to me, uh, by the way, what's the starting salary at, uh, for Harvard Business School graduates this year? And this is 1972. Everybody hang on to your hats. It's $14,000 a year, sir. Pause. We'll be going south from there, he said. <laughs> I took that as a positive sign. And then as we get to the airport, I miss the turnoff. I miss the exit to American Airlines. And he's always on a tight schedule. And he had told me that he was, we didn't have a lot of time to his flight. Now I got to drive all the way around the circle at Logan Airport for another 10 minutes to get back to the American Airlines ramp. And as I drop him off in the car, I think, kiss that one goodbye. You know, he, 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 there's no chance he hires a guy that can't find the right exit ramp. <laughs> Long story short, I go back to campus and I remember walking through the library and this is an hour or so after the class that he'd, that he'd uh, taken part in. And there were five or six other students writing him letters. <laughs> after which I thought again, no chance. One thing led to another, all those other people took other jobs and I got hired as his administrative assistant. Now I wasn't hired as an agent yet. I just went to work for him. And this was his way of teaching people the business in those days, you know, to just do projects for him. It was really a staff job. It wasn't, a, it wasn't an agent job at all. And then about six months after I, I came on board, uh, one of the key guys that was working in the golf division representing clients left. And he said, Hey, Hughes, you know, you play golf in college. I know you follow golf. You like golf. Would you be interested? And I said, are you kidding? Sure. So that was kind of a long winded explanation. No, that uh, I, I wanted to start with McCormick anyways, because I, I, I don't feel like we've ever totally dove into him on this pop podcast in any way. And the, who better to discuss that with somebody than uh, with somebody who knew him intimately and was hired by him. So, well, for, for the listeners that maybe aren't familiar with the origin story of how, you know, McCormick even got into the agency business. I'm wondering if you could kind of give us a, a rundown of what that, you know, the, what that story is and what he was like to work with and how, you know, the vision for agency in general was was formed in the golf world and developed. You bet. Uh, Mark was a fine golfer himself, grew up in Chicago, only child. He went to... Princeton initially, and I never really heard why, 
but he left after a couple years there and finished college at William and Mary, that fine school in Virginia. And he's playing on the William and Mary golf team. And one of the teams they play is Wake Forest. And this is in the 50s. Now, he wasn't playing number one on the William and Mary team. Arnold Palmer was playing number one for Wake Forest, but that's how they first met. And nothing particularly happened. They're college kids. Arnold wasn't a pro yet, et cetera. They go their, their own ways. So Mark takes a job with a law firm in Cleveland. He wanted to be in Chicago where he was from. His wife was from a little town called Lima, Ohio, in the western northwestern part of the state. And they literally flipped a coin. And he interviewed with a bunch of Chicago law firms and a bunch of Cleveland law firms and Cleveland came up. So he took a job at uh, a firm in Cleveland no longer exists, but, and he's a lawyer and he's working there as a, you know, nascent lawyer, but he's also playing in some golf tournaments. He qualified for the U S open. I want to say twice. It might only have been once. And he qualified for the U S amateur a couple of times. So at that point, Palmer had turned pro. We're now talking about late fifties. Of course he won his first masters in 58. So I don't know where in that, in that spectrum it was, but when Mark is out playing in the U S open one year, Palmer, who's already turned pro and some other people came to Mark in the locker room. You can believe it. And said, Hey, Mark, you're a lawyer. I don't have any idea. Would you just take a look at this Wilson sporting good contract for me? Cause I don't have a clue. There were no teams of advisors. There were no agents as we know them today. Nothing of the sort. These are pro athletes kind of on their own. Maybe they had a hometown friend that was trying to help them with stuff. So the more Mark heard about this, you know, he got this from two or three different players. He started thinking, wow, this is, this is crazy. You know, these people need help. So out of that sort of process, really luck, I guess you could say, one day ended up going to Palmer and said, hey, why don't we make a relationship here? You play golf. Don't worry about this other stuff. Let me, you know, give you advice and consent on that and uh, see what happens. And he started a little business um, on the side while he's still working at the law firm with another guy. And they started booking exhibitions, which were big in those days. You say exhibition today to a young, a young golf pro, they have no idea what you're talking about. But in those days, as you probably know, Chris, that, you know, they go around the country playing at, in the, at the Toledo Country Club, you know, and two pros or four pros would come. And it was a big deal. All the members came out. Sometimes people from the town came and so forth. So that's really how he got into it. Palmer, of course, exploded on the scene, late 50s, 1960, wins the Masters again. And pretty soon, Mark realized this was a real full-time opportunity, not just a part-time thing while he's at the law firm. And he established a company that eventually, a few years later, became international management. Because is it fair to say at that time period that the, the business of golf, or, or I should say the business around golf, hadn't really started yet? I mean, generically speaking, nothing to, that would be recognizable to the terms you know that it is today. But even then, it wasn't, you know, golf on television wasn't really a thing. It was, it was evolving right around that time period. I think 56, if I want to say right, was the first Masters telecast or something like that. It seems like it was almost like the, the McCormick and Palmer together invented the marketing side of professional golf. Is that fair to say? Would you, would you say? Very much so. I'll give you an interesting story. 
in those days, one of the things that Palmer in the early going had Mark look at was his contract with Wilson Sporting Goods. Wilson Sporting Goods, now Palmer's a big time star at this point, late 50s, early 60s, had a lifetime contract with Arnold Palmer where his rights to clubs, balls, golf bags were held in perpetuity by Wilson Sporting Goods and he was being paid $5,000 a year. I mean, you tell that to people today that, yeah, come on, sure, tell me another one. But that's how far, if the pendulum has swung too far now, Chris, you know how things are in life. They go from one to the, if the pendulum now is so far the other way that agents are running the business and players are telling owners they're not going to play unless they're traded and all this sort of stuff. Think back to this, where an Arnold Palmer unknowingly signed a Wilson contract. He was really happy, 5000 a year. I had no idea what he'd give it away. That's yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Whatever time we're going to talk today, I know is not enough time to get all of, all of the stories uh, and timeline wise about, uh, about the the agency world. And it is fascinating to me, right. Especially in, as the, you know, the, the professional golf is currently undergoing some pretty, uh, some, some changing tides, if you will, and uh, how money all factors into all this and deals is, is extremely, extremely important. But by the, by the way, just to, you know, on that same score in those days, the goal of a touring pro, and you know this, I'm sure, from reading about people like Claude Harmon, the goal was to play well enough on the tour. There was no money per se that you could make a livelihood out of. The goal was to play so well that you could get a club job at a Wingfoot or a, <laughs> or a Oakmont or a Olympic club. That was what the pros were striving for. And people say, wait, what? I mean, somebody just finished 19th yesterday and made $110,000. I mean, guys went their whole careers in the 60s, late 50s and 60s, and didn't make 200,000. So the opportunity was, was ripe for a McCormick to come along. He just happened to be the guy. He wasn't the first. There was a guy named Fred Corcoran who lived actually on the grounds of Wingfoot. His house overlooked some hole. And he represented uh, Sam Sneed, and Ted Williams. So he was represented was kind of a word nobody used back then, but he was a, a guy, he wasn't a lawyer, but he was advising them. And there may have been a couple other guys around too. But what happened was historically that made McCormick and international management go crazy so fast was in terms of growth, Palmer, Gary Player came along and in whatever that was, late fifties as well, player went to Palmer and said, look, I got some business things going. What do you, he said, well, you ought to talk to Mark. And then bingo, 1960, Jack Nicholas, or sorry, 62, he turned pro. And Nicholas also, because there was nobody else around, signed with McCormick. So here's a guy's a, a lawyer doing this part-time. And about three years later, he has the big three that weren't quite the big three then, but they were on their way to being. And boom, sort of professional golf management took off. Hmm. I was gonna say on their way to being in, in part, thanks to him. I mean, the, the whole thing is kind of taking it, when you, when you really drill down to it, the ability to get a golf ball in a hole is not that interesting. Right. But building around the mark, like building a whole marketing and endorsement element around the sport, a marketability of players 
is like where the interest comes from, right? I don't know if I'm saying that very well, but it, I don't want to call it hype. Maybe it is hype. Like it takes someone or an organization of some kind to build a structure around all this to make it appealing to people. And it's like, it's the, it's shaped the, you know, the professional golf world as we know it. And I just find this, this time period super fascinating in that regard. Absolutely. And McCormick would be the first to, to tell you, and he did, it was complete, you know, figure it out as you go along. He didn't know. He'd never run a business. He's a lawyer for crying out loud. And endorsements, you know, licensing agreements as opposed to straight endorsements, television shows that he started to put together. He, he was really fumbling his way along, but he had the trust. He had the trust of these three guys at the beginning and and just worked his butt off, you know, and, and it all just snowballed from there. So, all right, you, you have, an, I, be, I believe you said an administrative assistant job with IMG. Listen, we are going to build up to this and we're going to get there for you signing uh, Tiger Woods. I'm guessing there's maybe something that happens in between that. What, what's the next step up from administrative uh, assistant to, uh, to you know, becoming an agent? How did that work? Well, when he told me that, you know, this guy had left the company, I hadn't even met him. He left right when I joined. And a couple of months later, he said, do you want to do you want to start doing this? I went out on the tour I went to Napa, uh, my first tournament. I'll never forget. And I just started working the tour. And at that stage, you know, they had clients like Bob Charles, um, Tony Jacklin. Uh, Nicholas was just in the process of separating and going his own way with a bunch of guys in Columbus that were friends of his. But we still had Palmer and Player and a handful of other, of other young pros. And so out there I go. So kind of to fast forward, between the time I went out there and Tiger Woods, which was about 20 years, I didn't even think about this till the other day when you, we were getting ready to do this podcast. I signed and managed six number one golfers, hmm. which the enormity of which really hit me. I'd never thought of it that way. Now, there was no world ranking at the time, but sort of in order. They were Tom Watson in 73, Nancy Lopez in 1976, Curtis Strange in 1976, Greg Norman in 82, David Duval in 94, and then Tiger in 96. So I wasn't managing all of them at the same time because various things happened. Like Watson decided, his wife actually decided that she wanted something for her brother, Tom's brother-in-law to do. So they kind of learned from, from me and from IMG for a while, then they left, which happens. But a lot of stuff happened in there. And again, I was finding my way, you know, McCormick says go out on the tour. I said, well, where's the handbook? You know, where's the, what am I supposed to do? You'll figure it out. And that's kind of the way he was. I mean, with people, it's like you either sink or swim on your own. And uh, I mean, he was always available. If you had a question, don't get me wrong, but he was traveling all the time. He was rarely in Cleveland. So when I was in Cleveland, I couldn't walk into his office and say, what the hell do I do about this? You know, but it was, uh, it was a, it was a real ride. Let me tell you, it's, it's a lot of about almost 30 years. Well, how do you, what's your sales pitch, right? I mean, how do you, you don't manage six number one players without having something that is, you know, that separates you from a million other people that are coming up to them, trying to get, you know, get a piece of their pie or, or you know, sell them something or tell them lies or they, whatever you have to do. What, how, how did you end up with these people? What was your advantage? Well, the biggest advantage, of course, Chris, was the track record of IMG, what we'd done, particularly with superstars, and what we'd done with players on their way to being superstars. 
and we were the largest and we were the most worldwide. We had offices all over the world at that stage. And that's in and of itself a wonderful sales pitch. The flip side of that, of course, is always the people that come along and say, hey, Curtis, what the hell do you want to be with those guys for? They got Palmer, player. They got Tony Jacklin. They got, you know, come with me. You'll be my main guy, my main concentration. I'll put all of my energies into you. To which my only response, and I guess it was persuasive to some people, I would say, Curtis, if you had a serious medical problem <laughs> and a surgeon in Denver was the best guy in the world and you went to see him and you found out he had a hundred clients, would that stop you from having that guy operate on you? And the same if you had a legal problem, don't you want the very best? So it's a powerful argument against us, as I described at the beginning, you're too large, you're too, you know, I'll get lost, you know, how am I going to be important to you guys? You have, and, and by that stage, we had tennis players and we had a whole television operation. Um, but, and trust me, Chris, not everybody listened to my counter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there are a lot of guys that I didn't sign everybody. Well, I was going to say, there's a lot of the research I did for this, you know, shows the ups and downs of these relationships. Almost none of them last for a extremely long period of time. Is that fair to say? What we would always say in the agent business is a client sooner or later, and it doesn't matter the achievements, the accomplishments, the contracts, the endorsements that you've lined up, sooner or later are going to say, what have you done for me lately? And that's uh, something you're always sensitive to and always aware of, cognizant of, but it's just human nature. And you'd say, wait, wait, hey, Greg, what about the multi-million dollar deal with Reebok where you're making three times what anybody else is in apparel? What about the deal with Spalding? Oh, yeah, 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 okay, right. But what have you done for me lately? Well, it's also just in reading about uh, some of the, the quotes after you had split with Greg Norman too, it didn't sound like he was uh, in a huge hurry to give anyone at you or anyone at IMG a lot of credit for a lot of those deals saying something along the lines of, you know, anybody could have done that, or I could have done that myself. That sounds like something yeah. that uh, yeah. is said at the, at the end of a lot of relationships. Yeah. Well, that, in that case is, you know, and everybody's different. He is a, has a serious, uh, ego problem and let's face it you don't have a big ego you do not get to be number one in the world in tennis golf you know acting music whatever i, I they're the, the people that are normal human beings who who achieve those sorts of things without being kind of ego maniacal are few and far between and i'll tell you a couple in a minute if you're interested sure <laughs> but uh two, uh, let's do it right now i'll forget the two most down-to-earth true superstars that I ever dealt with. And one was just a friend because the head of our hockey division was, was his agent. And I got to know him and that's Wayne Gretzky. And the other, who's a, a great friend of mine to this day. And I actually did some endorsements for is Jim Nance of CBS because we had broadcasting clients also. They are as true blue and as normal and as Chris Solomon or Hughes Norton or whatever you want to say as the day is long unaffected by success. And I attribute both sort of looking back on it, uh, not playing psychiatrist here to, to strong family values in both their cases.
Hmm. That's, but, that's um, been my experience with Jim Nance. Uh, I don't know Wayne Gretzky. I've met Wayne Gretzky a couple of times, but I don't know him very well. But man, Nance is, uh, he, I feel like that guy treats his role in sports history with the utmost seriousness. I mean that in the best way in terms of he knows he's a huge sports fan and appreciates the moments and knowing that he's the one that kind of is responsible for documenting it. He takes it as serious, you know, he takes, you know, Tiger winning the masters as serious as Luke list winning the farmers, you know, as far as uh, the dedication to his craft. And Chris, he's genuinely kind and nice to everybody. Yep. A little thing you'll notice almost every telecast in the course of a weekend, he will say something nice about one of CBS's cameramen or one of CBS's guys in the truck, not the director, you know, three or four slots down the line. He's that way to everybody. And he means it, you know, he, he just, the totality of what it takes to produce a great broadcast isn't lost on him. It's not because I, Jim Nance am here. It's because of the team and it's just wonderful. Yeah. He, uh, I mean, that's, that's saying a lot for the, the personalities that you've met over the years that those two stick out that much off the top of your head. But so is it, is it fair to say that Norman would be on the opposite end of the spectrum on that one? Well, I mean, <laughs> I think it is. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's gone through a lot of stuff and we've all followed it since. I mean, he's, He's just convinced that he's a business czar. There was a, you know, a tycoon in business and he kind of knows it all. It was a great exchange when he first was on his own. I got this secondhand um, from the guy that ran our operation in Australia, but the um, big uh, Australian business magnate named Kerry Packer ran the, the biggest broadcasting syndicate in the country of Australia. Very wealthy, successful guy. And he was a very blunt and to the point individual. And Greg got to be friends with him. And one day, Greg goes into Kerry's office. They're sitting there talking, so the story goes. And Greg's talking about all the businesses that he's going to set up and how he's going to staff them all and do this and do that. And there was a pause. And Kerry Packer, putting his feet up on his desk, which he liked to do, leaned back in his chair and supposedly said, Norman, if you want to be a businessman, you got to wear a fucking suit. <laughs> which was again that's the distinction between you're a great golfer or you're a great basketball player hard enough to do that at the top of your craft all the time don't try to do the thing that comes over a lot of them chris quite honestly is when you're so successful in one sphere of life and and this is a big and you are most often surrounded by friends and associates who tell you everything you say and believe is right on and true. You get to thinking, I'm as good a businessman as I am a golfer, or I'm as good a musician. I can be, you know, I'm LeBron James. I can go into music or whatever the situation is. And I always used to tell my clients, the one thing I would tell them on a regular basis and since I got fired by both Norman and Tiger after 12 years, maybe this wore a little thin. I said to myself, because I sense this, you can see it all the time with friends of theirs in their hometowns. Around. Once a week, you've got to tell your big clients that they're absolutely full of shit. <laughs> and unless you can do that, there's nobody that brings, frequently the wives will do that, but not always. And you have to make sure there's some perspective here because you get all this success at the top of the food chain 
and you lose it. A quick break here to check in with our friends at Original Penguin. I tell you guys every time I mention them that I wear their stuff every single day. I'm wearing two pieces of their clothing right now, the sweatpants and the lightweight hoodie. You can go to their website. they got a great end-of-season sale going on at OriginalPenguin.com. You can get leaf print hoodies, tonal flora print shirts. they got what looks like the whole TC collection going uh, right there on the homepage at OriginalPenguin.com. The fleece joggers are incredible, so comfortable to wear in the winter. I wear them around the house. they got short sleeve linen shirts. they got pants, jeans, denim boxers, whatever you could possibly imagine. They got golf shirts, stuff you can wear on the golf course, straight to the bar afterwards. The main thing I love about their offerings is the fact that you can wear it on the golf course if you want, or you can wear it out for a normal night. All kinds of sweaters, half zips, pullovers, whatever you could possibly imagine. Original Penguin, I've never regretted getting a piece of clothing from them. They got great slim fit stretch chino pants that are fantastic on the golf course. Their shorts are what I'm wearing in pretty much every video. I think I've said enough. OriginalPenguin.com for the clothes that you see us wearing, and all of our videos are a great partner of ours. Really thankful for their sponsorship of this show. Now back to Hughes Norton. You've said it way better than I could. What we're sensing among some people in professional golf of, you know, well, I've done this, this, and this for so many years and everyone's, you know, kissed my ass everywhere I've gone. Like, how could I be wrong about this? And, oh my gosh, you just, if you spend enough time, you know, around people that are yes men or are telling you exactly what you want to hear, your perspective on the world is bound to change no matter what. And uh, yeah, so, so tell us about, I don't know if we skip right to the end of Norman, but it sounded like, you know, he, he, was, he wanted to take a lot of credit for deals that you guys had helped him with or what happened there with, you know, with Co- I think it was Cobra back in the day. I, I, you know, there's various reports, but I'd love to hear your side of it. Well, you can get a sense for when relationships start to sour. I guess I'm an expert on that based on my track record. But, <laughs> um, you know, one time at Reebok, Reebok, the chairman of Reebok in those days, a guy named Paul Fireman, very uh, difficult guy, very egocentric as well and we're up there for a meeting on some style issues and norman's line and stuff and all of a sudden i see that greg and fireman are having a private meeting and that's very often the kiss of death um so that's when you kind of know things are going downhill cobra that's too long a story to go into but basically tom crow who's an australian great guy um, ran Cobra and had a guy who was running the business side of it, who didn't like agents in general. And I guess particularly didn't like me. And so then they started doing it. Let's Greg, let's make this deal ourselves. And by the way, that's always out there. No matter what your relationship is with the client, there are people who will, and Nike did this with Tiger to their everlasting shame. They not to jump ahead, but long after the process was established between the relationship with Tiger and me and his dad, toward the end, I'd been to Nike 10 times trying to figure out what's a fair deal for this kid, you know, if and when he turns pro, just general discussions, nothing specific. At the very 11th hour, they sent gentlemen directly who I'd never met from within Nike to Tiger's house. Hey, let's just do this deal with us. You don't need Hughes Norton. You don't need anybody in between. And that's, that's when a relationship is tested. And to his everlasting credit, Earl Woods called me, told me what had happened. And he said that he had told this guy from Nike, Hey, go back and tell Phil Knight, you got to trust somebody. And we trust Hughes. Wow. 
Yeah, that's that. I mean, that, that doesn't surprise me that there's, uh, you know, that people listen, I, I'd be lying if I said I didn't try to cut agents out of deals every now and then when I'm trying to arrange interviews or something <laughs> like that. So sometimes they make your life harder, uh, harder. By the way, but- I, I'm I'm through talking to you. We talked to my agent. OK, <laughs> well, yeah, I think the stakes are maybe a little bit higher when you're talking about uh, dollar sign deals that are as big as uh, as big as what you were doing. So. If we are skipping ahead to Tiger, then when was the first time you heard of Tiger Woods? What what did you heard? Uh, when did the pursuit, I guess, begin uh, for for IMG or for you with with Tiger Woods? Well, I basically did it. I mean, we had a team of people that were always looking at young, promising golfers, uh, boys and girls, young men, young women. You know, that's what you do. It's you have no idea. You know that Tom Watson, for example, was a third team All American. Okay, so where is the writing on the wall that that was the guy that we should, somebody should sign that was going to be a superstar? So you never know. So we're just checking things out. And, you know, Tiger was rolling along, winning the junior world in San Diego year after year at whatever, age seven, age eight, nine, wherever they started. And he was like any other prospect we were looking at. I always had in the back of my mind, I guess I'm a racist today if, if, if somebody hears this. I thought there would be a great, not good, great African-American golfer. And this kid had all the markings of it. So he's, he's high on my list, as were a bunch of other guys that nobody's ever heard of today. I'll never forget the story, by the way, just to <laughs> illustrate this. Bob Rosberg, who was a client of ours, great guy, very few people remember him today, was an ABC commentator, great player in his own light won the PGA championship and lost. I digress here. don't mean to Bob Rosberg, one of the great putters in the history of golf lost the U S open in 1969 at champions in Houston to a guy that was a terrible putter and fabulous tee to green, but couldn't putt at all. Orville Moody and Rosberg had a three foot putt on 18 to tie Moody and go into a playoff and the best putter in the world misses the three-footer so the worst putter in the world wins the USO. but i digress rossberg's working for abc he's he's the course reporter i think he might have been the first on course reporter for golf in those days chris schenkel and dave marr in the booth the only people that can relate to this chris are people about 30 years older than you okay <laughs> but trust me so anyway they're covering the u.s amateur it's at uh, riviera rossberg calls me on saturday and says I don't often do this, Hughes, but I just watched a kid today. He's the best young golfer I've ever seen. And of course, it was a guy that's long since forgotten. This is probably 1976 in there. Bill Sander, S-A-N-D-E-R from Seattle, Washington. Chris, he never went past about the 14th hole in a match that week. Blew everybody away. So, of course, with that recommendation, Bob surely knows, right? We signed Bill Sander, ended up advancing him hundreds of thousands of dollars because his family had no money. And that's something that frequently we did, if anybody has any interest, that you help a young guy get started and then he pays you back out of future earnings or endorsements. No interest, just part of what IMG as a big company was able to do. Bill Sander... Needless to say, no one's ever heard of him. Had a very short and for IMG unprofitable <laughs> career as a professional golfer. 
God bless him. I have no idea where he is today. I hope he's, I hope he's in Seattle having the time of his life. But so where were we? Tiger Woods is on my list and I'm going out to LA for something else, a meeting, couple of meetings somewhere. And there were three or four of us at IMG who were out there together. We had, a, I think we were, we might've met with Toyota. So I, I don't remember. I looked up Tiger Woods. I, I knew where he was from in California. I looked it up in the phone book, called his house a week before. Earl answers. I explained who I was, introduced myself. I said, listen, I'm going to be out there. Can I come by and say hello? Sure. And I'll never forget these guys. We were all in the car together, a limo or something, because we'd been at the meeting together. And they dropped me off because they were on their way to the airport. So they dropped me off. We pull up to Tiger's house in the street. And as I'm getting out of the car, these guys go, Hughes, wait a minute you're going to see a 12 year old now. <laughs> and, and this was very common in tennis, Chris. I mean, yeah. you had to start with tennis players at least that young and they were just laughing uproariously. Say, hey, good luck. You know, you need a, you're going to babysit for him tonight. What, you know, I'll never forget that. It was so funny. So that was it. I went in, Tiger wasn't there. I sit and sat for an hour and talked to uh, Earl and Tita. And at the very end, just an introductory meeting, Tiger came in, he came in from school, walked in, said hello, they took me back to Tiger's room and they showed what every, not every, but a lot of parents have on his wall, you know, marking how tall he was at each birthday with a pencil on the, on the, on the door or on the wall. So we looked at that and then Tiger said, okay, nice to meet you, see you. And I looked out the window and I can still see him, got on his bike and rode away. So that was my intro to Tiger Woods. Well, it, it's it's it didn't end up being though just you know the first first guy in the door is who is who gets to represent him. How do you go about you know how do you go about the ultimate strategy you get to for uh, which was controversial? I think it's fair to say and um, how you were you know the how you went through Earl or what your strategy was. Just tell us about that. How you end up with the strategy that you end up at? Okay, so Earl was traveling everywhere with Tiger in those days to play junior tournaments and then to play amateur tournaments. And Earl was a uh, retired Green Beret Colonel. He did two tours in Vietnam. Everybody knows the story. So he was on a pension and he'd also been working for, I want to say General Dynamics, but that's not it. It was another manufacturing company with a big base in LA, but he had retired from them as well. And let's face it, you know, two airfares to New Orleans and hotel for a week and stuff, you know, was, was very expensive for, for Earl and his family. Earl never said to me, oh my God, I don't have any money or anything of the sort. I mentioned before how we would advance Bill Sanders of the world money when they turn pro, et cetera. You can't do that with an amateur, obviously. And I started thinking to myself, you know, Earl is, we don't, our team of agents looking at prospects, we really don't go on the amateur circuit much at all we kind of scout them as they first turn pro and get out there. Earl is out there and he would always tell me about, he was great friends with the Keeney family. I don't know if you remember Hank Keeney and Kelly Keeney. Kelly was a real favorite of Tiger and Earl's. They were great friends. So I, one day with nothing else to do, I guess, although that wasn't true, I had too much to do, started thinking, wow, this is like a win-win. If we could figure out a way to compensate Earl so he'd have to exhaust his hard-earned, you know, retirement money. And at the same time, get a sort of a scouting look at other players. That would be awesome. So talked about it with Mark. 
Um, he had a very good relationship, Chris, with the guy who was the head of the USGA at that time, Sandy Tatum. And Mark went to Sandy and said, look, hypothetically, if a company like ours employed the father of a prospective golfer client, is that just no way? Is that something that could fly? And Tatum ended up coming back. He was a lawyer too. And he said, look, Mark, as long as there's no quid pro quo, that it's very crystal clear that there is no, okay, we're doing this so that when you turn pro, you will sign with us. That was okay. And nobody believes it to this day, but Earl was a very honorable guy. We laid this out for him. And I said, Earl, there is nothing. I mean, there can't be any quid pro quo here. You know, and we're taking a risk. Obviously, you could at the end of three or four years of this say I'm going with somebody else, but we think it's important and very useful for you and valuable. So we did it. And I still have somewhere in a musty 30-year-old file, Chris, the yellow pages that Earl would do. Now, this is, listen, kids out there that never have to sign your, do anything but sign your name or write. Earl Woods was old school, beautiful penmanship, absolutely flowing cursive. And there's pages and pages of evaluations of, of young kids, Kelly Keeney and a lot of girls, because, you know, they, boys and girls were at the tournaments where Earl was. And I kidded Earl later, a couple of years after Tiger turned pro, I said, Earl, you realize you weren't worth a shit at all as a scout. Everybody you thought was good is terrible. <laughs> he had a, a lot of laughs over that. but. Um, so it was a risk for us, Chris. I thought it was pretty creative. That wasn't the reason a lot of people ascribe, oh, that's why I signed with IMG. It really wasn't the reason at all. We had a relationship for years before that. And I like to think of it. It was just maybe another reason for him to see us, uh, as the place, you know, where his son should go. Well, you answered like 18 of my questions within that, just about Earl as a scout and everything. I love, I've seen, there's a couple of those you can find on the internet of those update reports. I've seen the one from Kelly Keeney. You're right. The pens, the penmanship there. It's kind of remarkable, but it uh, was, was the way to tiger through Earl at this time period, because I, I don't know the story, but if I'm piecing it together, or at least reading some theories out there, it was that, you know, you were Earl's guy. And then when tiger took, more of his control, maybe more of a control of his own affairs. Uh, that's when he fired you. Is that, am I onto something with that? How did you view the way to Tiger Woods as being through Earl? That may have been it down the road. Remember, there was a 30 year age gap between Tiger and me. And Earl and I were much closer in age. So I think maybe I gravitated more toward dad in the early days than I did the 13 year olds riding his bike out of the it's funny, the dynamic of the family, everybody has it kind of backwards. Earl is this gruff, tough, green beret, Colonel Vietnam veteran, you know, kick tiger's butt. His mom was really <laughs> the tough ass in the family. <laughs> I mean, she put up with absolutely nothing. She used to tell tiger, you come home with anything but A's, your clubs are in the garage. You're not playing stuff like that. And uh, of course, he became a great student and, and went to Stanford and did, did, did great there. I'm not saying that's mom's the reason why, but she was many times, not all the time, but many times she was the behind the scenes factor in certain decisions. 
in terms of Tiger, what I think happened, I never received an answer, Chris. And if you want to look at the long line of individuals in Tiger's life who he's fired from his girlfriend in the early days, never spoke to again, uh, his sports psychologist for years, who I got to know in the early years, Jay Brunza, never heard from again, the lawyer that I negotiated Tiger's representation contract with IMG with, um, that Earl appointed, great guy from Hartford named John Merchant, Fluff Cowan, Steve Williams, you know, wherever down the line, it's one and done. For whatever reason, I don't know if he got that from his mom or his dad or whatever, you're gone and you're never, it's like you never existed. And I don't know to this day, really, if, if you said, give me the reason, the reason that he fired you. You know, they said a bunch of stuff. You know, Hughes is too concerned with the money. I'll never forget the day it came out that I'd been fired. The aforementioned Wayne Gretzky. And actually, Jim Nance called me that same day just to sort of underline the point I said about both those guys. Wayne called me and he was literally screaming down the phone. Too concerned with the money? What the hell did they hire you for? Are you out of your mind? So I, I can't answer because to this day, and it's a terrible thing not to be able to answer. And I kind of had the same thing with McCormick. You know, McCormick shortly thereafter fired me out of the blue and never really gave me a reason. And as I think I shared with you before, didn't think I was any use to IMG anymore, but insisted on a strict set of handcuffs 10 year, no comp, you know, non-comp agreement with me. So we don't want you around here anymore, but we sure don't want you working for anybody else. So I've never really understood or dealt with both, I guess I've dealt with them, but I've never really, I'd much rather know more about both of those situations. Tiger doesn't speak to me anymore and never will. And Mark died. So if we're on the shrinks couch, I guess I'm telling you that would be something I'd like to, I'd like to know more about. Yeah, it, it's it's weird, you know, in, in a business that is rather cutthroat, you're also, it, if you could tell me better than, than, than I could guess, but it seems like you're at least responsible for, you know, part of Tiger Woods' professional development, right? He's 20 years old when he turns professional. What did you see? What, what was he like as a 20-year-old? Did you, uh, from a maturity standpoint, from, you know, just in general, what, what's your reaction when I say, what was Tiger Woods like when he was 20 years old? And where did your job begin and end with him? Very young, very immature, nice kid, great sense of humor, uh, enjoyed being around him. The thing I dealt with, I think, most successfully, and it was really hard at the beginning, was telling people like Phil Knight or Wally Uhein of Titleist that this kid who, make no mistake, amateur, what's the right word? You know, never to be equaled. Three U.S. juniors and three U.S. amateurs right in a row. Are you kidding me? But something funny happened, Chris. He got toward the end, like in his second and third U.S. amateur, he started getting sponsors exemptions. He played the LA Open a couple of times. He played a whole bunch of tournaments as an amateur. Guess what? He never made a cut. And the world was saying, wait a second, is this kid a match player? 
how and we I got this from Nike, less so from Wally, because Wally was much more into golf and Nike was just kind of stumbling into it. But what are you talking about? You're giving us numbers five times what Norman and Faldo, who were the top earners in those days, are making. You know, where's the proof? But the fact that, you know, I was able to persevere with that and for whatever reasons, probably a lot of luck, um, you know, my job. I thought, and I told Earl and Tiger this early on, with these, not because of me so much, I got a lot to do with this too, but because of what you've done in golf, we can set you up here that you are set financially for life. Now, Tiger could have cared less about that age 20. You know, he's excited about going out and playing professional golf. But the whole point was for me to, to make that because there was pressure on tiger having missed the cut in eight or 10 of these pro tournaments. Wow. When I get out there, what if it doesn't work? What if it, what if it, what if I fail? Not that he ever had those thoughts, but financially he knew it would never be an issue. And interestingly, all of these contracts, and that was a real sticking point with both Nike. And again, not so much Titleist. They were both for five years and there was no out. There was no, Hey, if you miss five more cuts, in the next six months, we get reduced to X. It was guaranteed. And in those days, you know, today, it's hard to imagine what, what, these, what these guys are making now. But, you know, to have 60, 70 million banked over the first five years of career, and again, it was, it was a large multiple of what everybody else was getting, was insane. So I felt great. And uh, a couple of years later, I'm out of a job. <laughs> That's where uh, I, I, the story just like doesn't add up, you know, from where we're sitting of, if I have it right, five years, 43 million with Nike and reported five years, 20 million with Titleist for the first, you know, uh, with that first deal, which one, how do you get, how do you get to those numbers? How do you, you know, as you said, like now that maybe may, may not sound as crazy, but you're talking four or five X, some of the top earners in the game right now. One, how do you even reach that number? What makes Tiger that much different back to what we were talking about earlier? Like getting the ball in the hole is kind of, is one thing. Yes, he's incredible at it, but as a marketing, you know, he's not five X better than the next guy on, in terms of shots. It takes him on there. How do you get to that? How do you convince someone that this person is worth that much? And why were you the guy that was able to get him the most, the biggest deals, you know, out of anyone that was in, in a highly competitive market for him? Well, early on, Chris, I, zeroed in on Nike because I knew the company. Our company did a lot of business with them across all sports. I had been out there a number of times. They were kind of just getting into golf. Curtis, Peter Jacobson, believe it or not, this is a real trivia thing. Go back and look at um, the masters that Seve lost when he hit it in the water on 15. I forget what year that was. It was in the 80s. 86. That's the Jack year, right? Yeah, 86. I think you're right. And uh, look at the first couple of days, he's wearing a Nike visor because I did a one-off deal for a week. He didn't have, he wasn't a client, but he was a friend of mine. And so we did, and it was a double swoosh. It was a swoosh underneath another swoosh, which Nike's never done. It was totally goofy. And I think on Sunday, he, he, he didn't wear it. He wore another one, which I told him for years afterward was why, why he lost the Masters on that Sunday. <laughs> But anyway, Nike was at a very interesting historical point, Chris. They, superstars were their bread and butter. They, they, they specialized in the top of the charts on whatever sport it was. 
Michael Jordan was, his career was winding down. This is mid nineties. Andre Agassi was kind of winding down and I, and they were going into golf. And a couple years before I thought, wow, this is a, you know, a, a, an open checkbook type of company. We knew what they paid. They are a great company. You know, they make wonderful apparel. They involve their star athletes from day one in the style and design part of it, which might not appeal to a young Tiger Woods, but as he went along, it probably would. So one thing led to another. And I just had in my mind, I, I knew what, what the best guys, because why? Because I represented Greg and he was the number one earner in terms of charisma and achievement and whatever. And we also, our London guys represented Nick Faldo. So I knew what all the numbers were. I mean, I was kind of fully aware of that. And I just had the idea in my mind, if you don't ask for it, you don't get it. And I'll never forget, there was a huge internal thing at Nike, which I learned about later. And then maybe that's why Phil Knight sent that guy down to Tiger's house to try to persuade Earl to deal directly with him. But I knew that they were getting into golf and it was a real dice roll for them to you know, put big money on an unproven kid. And they fought it and they fought it and they fought it in the end. They we got the number that I was looking for. And rumor had it that six months later, Phil Knight was bragging to his buddies. Phil Knight all of a sudden couldn't spell golf when we started. And then he started coming to all these tournaments and walking around. And he said to all of his friends, man, we got the greatest deal signing this kid. You can't believe how good we have. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, what a what an amazing time period. I know I've seen a picture of you. I, I believe it's after Tiger wins the Masters with his with his mom uh, with a cake. And, and was it at a, is that at a house in Augusta? Does that sound right? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. That was a great one. And that night, you know, we, he wins. We go through all the things. You go to the dinner where all the members are sitting as the, as the champion. So late Sunday night, we get back to the house and there's a bunch of friends of Earl's there. And, and uh, I don't know who was all there, probably eight or 10 people. And all of a sudden Tiger disappeared. He's like, where's Tiger? And his mom went looking for him and she came back and she wiggled her finger at me. She said, come here, come here. Looked, walked into his bedroom, opened the door. He had his green jacket still on and he was kind of hugging the, um, the trophy he was sound asleep great great memory oh. never forget that what what else sticks out in terms of of you know great memories during your time with tiger and and i'm just wondering too if you felt like you were obviously from an athlete standpoint you know he, he achieved things that we could not have ever imagined you know a golfer achieving but did you feel like you were dealing with a with a, a savant for a lack of better term you know was he able to kind of communicate with you on a human level I, i'm wondering what your experience is like in that regard yeah he was a great kid he's a really nice person and he has a great sense of humor and he loved telling dirty jokes and and you know stuff as a young kid that i'll never forget um just goofy memory when you ask we moved him to florida from california immediately because of tax savings and stuff and we set him up at isleworth which was a place where we had some pretty good connections. So anyway, we're down there and he's on the range and he, he, he was hitting these, you know, he'd get there and he'd hit a big, I was just, you know, I'm hitting balls with just the two of us there. And he'd hit a, just for fun, he'd hit a gigantic slice with like a seven iron. And then next ball, he'd hit a huge hook and it hooked 30 yards. And 
I'm a terrible golfer, but I'm trying. And I said, Tiger, how do you do that? He goes, I don't know. You just think hook. <laughs> You're not helping me at all here. <laughs> but that really a savant, you know, he, I mean, just the whole thing, watching him develop. And in those days, another thing I, I think Chris was as, as big a contribution as the financial, certainly more important to Tiger in those days was the whole setup with Butch Harmon. Indelible memory for me. He won the masters. Not a week later, a couple days later, we'd all left Augusta. He called me and said, can you get me the tape of the weekend? I said, sure. And we called CBS and we got it. And I was at his house a couple of days later and he's watching it. He's watching it over and over. And there'd be a couple of holes he'd go by, go by and he'd go, God, that terrible swing. Look at that. <laughs> and he just went on, you know, three holes later. Oh my God. I can't believe I hit a shot that bad. I said, Tiger, um, if memory serves me, you won by 12 shots. What are you talking about? He said, I got to change my swing. Now think about this, the, the acumen, the whatever you want to call it to, to realize this is not going to work. So he kind of said, give me some thoughts on that. And we had also put Butch with Greg a couple of years before. And that relationship in both cases, actually, I, I'm a firm believer that the best golf either of those superstars ever played was with Butch Harmon. Now, Hank Haney will argue that, and he has a good, a good argument. You know, I think he won six majors with Hank, and Hank changed him from Butch. But was it Tiger or the instructor? You know, we'll never really know. What would Tiger have done without Butch Harmon or, and or Hank Haney? I don't know. Do you? Hmm, but no. Harmon was great for Tiger in terms of taking a really wild, powerful swing with a short game that nobody could touch all the way through his amateur days and refining it to wherever it was it ended up before they split. Oh, Butch is on that list too of people that, that got fired by Tiger. Right. Well, it, it's, you know, it's crazy because it, it, he was right about the swing though he was not how many how many you know people at age 21 can win the masters by 12 shots and can like honestly say like yeah look that was a peak week but i want consistency and i need to redo this to get more consistent like that is that no one else does that no one else has that acumen and don't forget he'd won las vegas the fall before yeah. and then he'd won the tournament of champions in january i mean this is a guy's it's working this is working you know if it ain't broke don't fix it right so, but he, and I sort of had that conversation, as I recall, is are we sure we want to, you know, you're doing pretty well here. You, yep. No question. And he didn't go into it, Chris saying, I'm going to change everything. He just said, I really need, he had had an instructor, you know, as a kid growing up, Rudy, I'm blanking on his name in uh, Southern Cal, and he had helped him all along. And then at Stanford, he kind of, I think made his own way, but Rudy was still close. So he really needed a you know, legit full-time instructor. The question was always going to be who, who it was. So Rudy Duran was the name. Very good. Duran um, Duran. Yeah. I don't know how to ask this question, but what do you, what did in your sense, in your experience with Tiger, what made him tick? What, what is it? What is Tiger all about? You know, I think it is, you know, it's a question I ask myself about almost all professional athletes in some way. Like what, what is it you're about? What do you want? How would you answer that? What, what made Tiger tick? Just wanted to beat everybody's ass. 
in anything, ping pong, hoops out in the garage, you know, out in the driveway, golf, little contests on the range, putting contests. He just burned to compete and win. You know, add to that incredible talent. That's a pretty tough, tough thing to be. If you were still Tiger's agent in 2009, when his life gets flipped upside down, how would you, how would you have handled that with, with sponsors or, you know, new partners or old partners, or, you know, he's getting dropped left and right. What, what would your life have been like during that time period? Pretty hectic. I, I didn't think that was particularly well handled, but you know, easy for me to say I'm the armchair quarterback at that stage. It's kind of something that agents don't deal with normally. And it's uh, it, it, I guess more and more today with all the, you know, all the embarrassing things that happen in all sports that we see daily these days, but it's, uh, that, that's no fun. That's, that's really, uh, that's, that's a tough one. What, uh, in one of the articles I'd found, you know, just talking about you guys, the, the, the breakup, the split, whatnot, it, it, it according to a, a CNN SI report, it said Norton had overcommitted tiger in business deals. And Earl Wood said Norton was only interested in the almighty dollar. What, what, what you touched on the, on the dollar thing already, but overcommitting tiger in business deals. Why does that, does that, uh, does that hold water that claim? Absolutely false. I mean, everything that we ever did, I ever did with any client that I managed, uh, the, the, the person has to sign off on. I don't have power of attorney. We never had it. Mark never believed in it. It's stupid. It, all it does is get you in trouble. So anything that a client does from Arnold Palmer at the beginning on down was their choice. Our job was to present opportunities to the individual who hired us to enhance their financial well-being through endorsements, licensing, appearances, ownership of situations, whatever it is. And look, Tiger, there's multiple companies here that want to do X, or there's a couple of companies that want to do Y, or you can play the Australian Open for $400,000, or you can go to Japan for $300,000. Let's take that as an example. So Tiger, or the player typically says, well, what do you think? And I would say in that particular example, you make 100,000 more in Australia, but Japan's far more valuable because there's lots more opportunities for off-course income there in terms of endorsements or whatever the case may be. It's a golf-mad society. Australia is too, but it's tiny. You know, the, the, the future revenue that you would make from the Australian continent will pale besides that in Japan. Is it more fun to go to Australia? Sure. They speak English. They're, they're much, they, they love Americans and vice versa. Japan's a tough place to go. It really isn't any fun. It's an hour and a half to the golf course every day and back, et cetera, et cetera. This is kind of an insight on how the conversation would go. If Tiger said, fuck it, I want to go to Australia. It's more fun. Perfect. Let's go. But there's an example, Chris, of the money, and again, if you're me or if you're IMG, and this is why IMG is particularly valuable, as large as we were and as successful, the, our commission, 20% or whatever it is on that extra 100,000 in that example between Australia and Japan is meaningless. It's meaningless. The future, you know, it's the long term of how we tried to think for superstars. And in that instance, Japan's far more valuable. At 200,000, it would be more valuable. 
But back to your question, I can't say, Tiger, you're going to Japan, get on the plane. It's not how it works. Did, I've never really gotten this. It, it's, I always struggle to kind of marry the two here because I don't get the sense that Tiger is driven, especially by money. Yet at the same time, he's one of the he's the highest earning golfer of all time, and seems to have been had no problems taking advantage of his extreme marketability. Did you get that sense from Tiger? Did he does he care about money? Did he care about money? Did that evolve at all during your time together? What's your take on that? I always used to kid him. I said, "You're the cheapest." son of a bitch i've ever met in my life oh wait check that there's one cheaper he'd go what your dad <laughs> no he wasn't look uh it was almost like in the early days chris remember i wasn't there too long after you know fired at the end of 98 so it was the masters i mean it was like earl and people like his lawyer john merchant were much more impressed that's the wrong word they understood the ramifications and the enormity and the specialness of those initial contracts I did. For Tiger, it was like, you know, where do I sign? That's great. Uh, I, I got to go hit balls. And that's, you'd expect that from a young guy. And that's, yeah, he's, he seemed to have, you know, had his, his priority was playing the best golf, right? And even off course setup was going to, you know, streamline whatever allowed him to play his best golf. I hear Rory say a lot of the same things uh, in today's day and age. Yet that, does, that, that doesn't, I guess, how does that differ from a lot of athletes that you uh, have, have worked with? They're all different. I mean, it, it's so hard to generalize. A lot of it is their background. You know, if, if you came from a well-to-do situation versus or relatively versus not, that can have a two-pronged effect as how you value financial stuff. Curtis, to his credit, was always willing and able. You know, he wanted to, perhaps he had a, you know, better realization that this can all end tomorrow, you know, but he wanted to get set up at a certain financial level where just crazy, not that it's his alone, but if your tax-free income in a certain year was X, wouldn't that be a wonderful situation to have as you went the rest of your life? You know, so those kind of things. Did Tiger ever have specific goals like that? Not a chance. But it all varied. You know, Greg really loved money, loved it. Couldn't wait to let you know, or not me in those days, but friends of his or fellow pros. Greg used to go into the locker room. This is how funny things, things change. He used to go in the locker room and say, talk to players and some guy he talked to and he'd say, wait, wait, you're not with IMG. And the guy would go, no. And Greg would say, I guess you don't like money. <laughs> I mean, it, we can laugh about, you know, the, you know, you guys ultimately splitting, but you were together, what, 11 years. Does that sound right with Norman? Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, 11 years, 82 to 93. And what, what kind of contracts or what kind of deals, you know, what, what, what are the, uh, for people that aren't familiar, myself included for what were the big deals that you and uh, Norman worked on together? Reebok was huge and yeah. huge and Nike wasn't into golf then. So we didn't have that leverage one company against another, but that was, uh, I mean, he was really a big deal and he looked great in their stuff and uh, some unknown, I've forgotten, not unknown, but I've forgotten the person's name at Reebok came up with the shark logo, which is, you know, became a multicolored logo. If you recall on all kinds of different, it was fabulous. And I think Reebok paid him $5,000, you know, no, no royalty see you. And uh, <laughs> that's what, that's a $5 million logo. Anyway, you know, Spalding was a difficult situation. That's what led to Cobra. Interesting story with Spalding. Greg was tearing up the world of golf and we got down, his contract was coming up. We got right down to the final kind of mile 
And I think, if I recall correctly, it was, the, I'm pretty sure it was the first million dollar a year equipment deal, you know, which mind boggling today, the 30th leading money winner is multiple millions. But that was a real breakthrough. And we got to the end and I'll never forget the, the president of Spalding balked. George Dickerman was his name. And he, he said in the, the very last minute, he said, can't do it. I said, George, what are you talking about? I've been talking about this for, for months. I can't be in a position of paying a Spalding athlete more than I as CEO am making, quote. <laughs> and that, led, that actually led to Cobra, which was a fabulous deal for Greg. And he ended up with an ownership stake in Cobra and made 40 million. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so it's funny how things kind of happen for a reason, maybe. I don't know. I don't think so. But that worked out pretty well. And then, so like, he's, you know, I read an article that said that he said that you advised him against investing in a percentage of Cobra, which I do not, I do not imagine that you would agree with. <laughs> that is brutally uh, unfair. It's, yeah. it's the com complete opposite. Revisionist history, Chris, is a wonderful thing. Hmm. Gosh, yeah, well, that guy, I think we could do a whole nother podcast about that guy. But I do got to get one more story out of you before we let you go here, which is, you have accomplished one of the rarest feats in golf history, I think, which is playing three particular golf courses in one day and uh, doesn't seem geographically possible. I want you to tell us the story of those three golf courses. I take zero credit for this. George Pepper, who for decades uh, ran Golf Magazine on the editorial side, P-E-P-E-R, wonderful guy, one of my great friends uh, throughout the sports management era, um, was a big proponent, fine golfer himself, was a big proponent of uh, against slow play. He thought it was wrecking the game. And of course, at every point in time, certainly in my 30 or 40 years around golf, this conversation has come up. People are playing too slow. It's going to be the ruination of the game, yada, yada, yada. So George came up with this idea. Let's play St. Andrews, Wingfoot, and Pebble Beach in the same day. I said, George, that's great. How are we going to do that? Well, in those days, Chris, there was something called the Concord, which ran between New York and London. I think New York and Paris, too. All the pros going to the British Open when the Concord was running would get on board and turn a seven-hour flight to London into three hours. So Pepper said, I, I, I know how we're going to do this. Here's what we're going to do. The British Open was at Royal Birkdale. And we were all going to be there, all of us being, he enlisted me. I was last pick, I'm sure. Bobby Clampett was another. You talk about people, we were, you know, Bill Sander types. Obviously, Bobby accomplished a lot more. Bobby Clampett was Tiger Woods in the late, late 70s, early 80s. There was nobody better. And a wonderful person besides. And it just all came down to a unfortunate situation. We can do a show on that. Huh. The British British Open. He was leading by five shots after 36 holes. Hit it in a pot bunker in the fifth hole the third day. Took three to get out. Anyway, so we're at the Bobby was a I'd done a relationship between Golf Magazine and Bobby Clampett. He was a playing editor, as they called it in those days. Did articles about instruction, etc. So George Pepper, Bobby Clampett, the best golf photographer in the world, a guy named Brian Morgan. We had to have a photographer, right? And me. Said. George laid it all out. Here's what we're going to do. British Open ends Sunday. Sunday night, we're getting uh, a flight to St. Andrews, private jet. 
We're sp spending the night at the Old Course Hotel. We're teeing off at 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> Pitch dark. Thank God for the widest fairway in the history of golf. <laughs> the first hole at St. Andrews. We played in two and a half hours, rushed to another private jet down to Burkdale, where all the pros were getting on the Concorde Monday morning. I'll never forget, we're the last to board. So we're getting on, we're walking past Palmer, Ray Floyd, Tom Watson, they're all sitting there waiting for us so they can take off. Flew to New York, 95 degrees, I'll never forget. We go to Wingfoot, played there in a, two hours and 45 minutes. Interestingly enough, never sprinted, never ran. We just walked quickly. And when you got to your ball, you hit it. Of course, the course was clear in front of us. People were out there watching. Well, there was a qualifier going on at that point, wasn't there? And you guys ran there was. them and played through them? We had, to pl we had to tee off on 10. So they worked us around the qualifying, whatever it was, Met, Met Golf Association qualifier. Finished, jumped in the shower, got a private jet to Pebble Beach, where Bobby was from, interestingly, grew up in Carmel. And they had shut the golf course. And you know how much, it, it wasn't 600 a tee time like it is now, but it was a lot of money. And Pebble, sort of in honor to Bobby, shut the place down. There were a thousand people walking around, mostly friends of Bobby's from, from there. And we played, we had the leisurely, we knew we had it made. We played Pebble in a leisurely three hours and five minutes. <laughs> Just like... Unbelievable. And the greatest thing was, there's a great, there's a famous picture of us on the 18th green at Pebble, wiped out totally from whatever, eight, nine time zones. And we had champagne, we just finished. And right after the photo was taken, Bobby, who was 21, turns to us and said, anybody want to go play some basketball at my house? <laughs> I said, Bobby, you see the, you see the, uh, the lodge right over here? I'm going to bed in 10 minutes. <laughs> Oh my gosh. That's, I, did it feel like all one day or did it feel like three days? It was really exhilarating because I mean, it was like, because it was so crazy what we were doing. And I really didn't get tired almost until it was over. Uh, but I, I'm sure we napped on the way to, you know, we had a bunch of flights and stuff, but going across that many time zones too is, is crazy. But it was, it's really fun because I don't think anybody's ever done something that nutty. And uh, maybe that's my claim to fame at not Tiger and Greg and all the other guys. <laughs> Man, you got some great stories. I feel like we've only scratched the surface on this. We may have to, uh, if you're up for it, we may have to do this again in the future. But in the meantime, I uh, am going to let you go. And thank you for uh, dedicating some time to telling some, uh, some golf history stories, man. This has been extremely insightful. And we really, really appreciate uh, your insight and your willingness to share. So thank you very much, Hughes. Thank you, Chris. Enjoyed it. We'd love to come back. Cheers. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most.